As I said earlier, as we we're beginning our time together here this morning, um, this uh, message is meant to be something of a follow-up to our parenting conference last week, and I started looking into this particular text here, Luke 18, and found myself thinking one thing in, in the beginning and over the course of the last several days moving in a slightly different direction, coming across some, some, uh, some thoughts, some imp- making, some, making some impressions upon me. One quote in particular stood out uh, by a, a well-thought-of, uh, well-regarded New Testament scholar in his commentary, Leon Morris, actually, uh, on this text. I'm just reading along, reading along. I get to the bottom of a several string of paragraphs, and I see this sentence. It just jumped off the page. Jesus is different. I thought, well, that's the understatement of recorded history. Um, Jesus is different. I mean, what, I mean, under, I mean, I'm thinking, good night. I mean, that's like as as if uh, you know your soccer team out there at Heritage Park on a Saturday. Uh, goes up 10 to nothing in the first half, and the officials, in mercy, call the game. And, and at the end of the day, and you're reflecting on the game, and people are asking you, how did it go? And you sum it up by saying, yeah, we played pretty well. I mean, it's just, just so understated, such an understatement. Jesus is different. I mean, good night. I mean, he is far different than every other religious leader through the course of human history, far different than any teacher that has ever, ever lived, far different, by the way, than most people think of who he is, far different than how they think of him, and far different than how sadly they have been taught of him. Jesus is indeed different. Let's look at our text together for a few minutes. Uh, Luke 18 is where we are this morning. This is the third of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke is where we are. Luke and John, but we're in chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel. A very short little segment there. Um, Wouldn't be surprised if no few of you are familiar with this passage. And Lord willing, by the end of our time, all of us will be. Chapter 18 of Luke's Gospel, just verses 15 through 17. Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Hear now the Word of God. Now they were bringing even infants to Him, that He might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to Him, saying, Let the children come to Me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Can we pray together for a moment? Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we acknowledge indeed you are different. You stand apart. Oh, but more, you stand above. This is not just a truth that we are talking about here, a possibility of a way to go among many other good ideas. You boldly declared yourself to be the way, the truth, and the life. God incarnate, the very Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, 
the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher of our faith, the Creator Himself, the Sustainer Himself, the Redeemer Himself, the Savior Himself in flesh. And there you were that day, standing amidst the drama, parents coming with one idea and the disciples with another idea, and you making clear to all what really is. We ask that You would give us ears with which to hear this morning. Oh, that You would dig ears into our hard heads. Making way into our hard hearts that we would hear. Pray this in Your name. Amen. If you have spent any time studying the Gospels, you, you know at least a couple of things that as you are reading before and making comparisons, you do see differences. Uh, you do see differences between them. And that's because the each is written by a different human author, and each is written to a, a different audience, and they are written with different emphases or themes that are coming about there in mind. So each in their own way is different. But each is also similar, obviously. In most cases, they're looking at the same events, though perhaps from different angles. Certainly they have the same subject. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the, the Son of God. And they are wrestling, they are um, wrangling with. Just who is He? And why has He come? And what are the implications of that? And what is it that He has, he has done? They're, they're wrestling with his, his mission and His authority, His, um, his status and perspective on, on all things. Now, you may be thinking at this point, well, why does that matter? What, what is the, such the, what's a big deal about that, his perspective on, on things? Well, it's a big deal when you consider that our perspective, and it doesn't take much reflection on the world today and our own lives to grapple just maybe a, even at a surfacey level with this, that our perspective, even with the most essential, important things, is skewed. Our perspective on even the most essential things in life can be spewed. The way we understand things, the way we interpret the data, um, our instincts are wrong. They're just wrong. Think of lemmings. You know, the cute little Norwegian rodents, right? You've seen all the Disney movies from back in the 50s, right? Um, lemmings. Uh, they... Um, are uh, masterful burrowers, so I understand. They grade very high on reproduction, so they proliferate rather quickly. Um, they apparently are, are, are known to uh, be inclined, once their population levels get to be too high, they take off towards the water, even hurtling themselves over the cliff sides in, into the, the waters. Hence is the, the reputation of, of the lemming. Did you know actually that's not true? Everything I just told you is a lie, perpetuated by, yes, those Disney movies from back in the 50s. Lemmings don't do that. Lemmings don't actually do that. So what have I just done to you? Uh, we, we're talking about lemmings and their flawed instincts, and what they know is all whack, but actually what we know is whack. Even about lemmings. It's something as simple and, and surfacy and nonsensical as it would seem as, as that. My point being that what we think we know isn't always so. Our instincts are, are off. 
our perspectives are skewed. Uh, we are in dire need, terrible need, if I can put it in that way, of going to Jesus and letting him set our sight aright on some of the most essential things that you can the most essential things that you can imagine. The most important things that we could talk about. Our perspective is skewed. Our instincts are wrong. And we are in desperate need of going to Jesus again and again and again that we would be enabled to see aright. You see that in three different ways in this passage. I thought it was just in one or maybe two. The more I've gotten into this, the more I realize, oh my goodness, there's so much more here. We're just going to look at three. We're just going to look at three. One, the value of children to Jesus. Two, our need to take our children to Jesus. And three, our need to go as children to Jesus. Those three things. First, the value of children to Jesus. Secondly, our need to take our children to Jesus. And thirdly, our need to go to Jesus as children ourselves. So let's look at these uh, in turn, if we may. First, the value of children to Jesus. This pushes back violently against our instinct, our, um, oh, I don't know, perspective towards self-determination. That is, making our own path, deciding um, what's best according to our selfish whims and wishes, our me-centered desires and demands. It's pushing back against that inclination and against that instinct. What do we learn here? We learn some things. Uh, actually, it's just, it just sits in the midst of a stream of biblical teaching. Children are persons and not objects. They are persons and not objects. They are made in the image according to the likeness of God Himself, no matter their age, no matter their stage of development. They are made in the image according to the likeness of God. Turn with me. Keep your thumb in, the, in Luke 18. Go with to the Psalms, if you would. That's in the very heart of your Bibles. Um, if you're clicking along, I really can't help you. If you've got a printed copy, it's pretty much in the middle. So uh, Psalm 139, beautiful words, striking words here, so deep in their implications. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, David is reflecting here upon his, can I say, his earliest days, the very earliest of his days. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made, wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. So children are God's handiwork, they are his masterpiece. Each and every one, each and every one, no matter the age, no matter the stage of, of development. As such, they are blessings. They are blessings and not burdens. Rightly understood. They are blessings and not burdens. I should have told you to stay in the Psalms. We're going back there now. Psalm 127. So if you were still in 139, go back 12. Okay? Uh, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Listen again, the, the psalmist's beautiful words here. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. 
Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, so much we could talk about there. I just want to simply say this, that clearly the psalmist intends us to understand that children are God's gift, whether born to us or adopted by us. They are God's gift to us. Blessings, not burdens. In terms of how that plays itself out, his intention for us, and these children has given to us as blessings in, in a family as well as a corporate community such as this church. To understand that we, he intends for us to partake of the joy of partaking in their flourishing in life. And over the course of that, especially for us who are parents, slowly but surely over the course of time as they grow, to learn some deep, heart-transformative lessons ourselves. They are blessings, gifts, such as the value. I'm just really, I feel like I'm just like flying 10,000 feet. There's so much we could talk about. But such as the value of children to Jesus, and that's why he called them to him that day. Because of how precious in his sight are, are the, those children, all these children, all children, to the Savior. Here's the clear answer then to the question. How does Jesus see children? There you go. It's right there in front of us. Also the answer to the question, how should we see them? as persons and not objects, as blessings and not burdens. And if we think in terms of every child, no matter age or stage, as made in God's image, and there's a lot in terms of what that means and what we could talk about, the implications are, but at the very least it means this, that they are intellectual, moral, physical, relational, spiritual creatures. And it is incumbent upon us to give ourselves gladly towards their development in every part of what that means. Gladly, corporately, and sacrificially. Because we know what? We know the value of children in our Savior's eyes. How can we do less? How can we do less? Well, and that is why I come back, though, to, say, to emphasize this point. Our perspective on the most essential things is so desperately skewed. Our priorities, our instincts, and oh, how we need them to go to Jesus again and again and pray that he would, would make us, help us to see, see things aright. See them aright. Okay, that leads into the second point. And that is not just the value of children to, to Jesus, but the need, especially as parents, but the whole of all of us together, to bring our children to Jesus. To bring our children to Jesus. Now the first point, the intent was to show you how that this pushes against the, the, our instinct towards self-determination. This pushes against our instinct towards self-dependence. Thinking we've got enough to bring to the equation. I can handle this, this parenting gig. I got it. 
It's not so hard. How big are they? Self-dependence. Luke 18, verses 15 through 16. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him. Jesus called them to him. We need to be mindful of the needs of our children. Now that means at least these two things. First, being aware of who they are. Whatever else you've heard, you need to just, if it's counter what I'm about to say, you just need to ditch it. I'm not being like obnoxious, but I'm just telling you the way it is. Whatever else you've heard, our children are not blank slates. They are not blank slates upon which their environment just simply writes. That's not the way, they're not neutral when they come into this world. They are not, work in the infant nursery, if you doubt me, innocent angels. Okay? They are not blank slates. They are not innocent angels. They are fallen sinners just like you and me. Or as Jonathan Edwards said, so, oh my goodness, what I'm about to tell you is going to rock your world. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest intellects that the, the North America has ever produced, okay? He himself had, I think it was 11 children. The man knows something of what he speaks and deeply steeped in the scriptures. This is how he described children. Little vipers. Okay? Okay? So we need to understand something of who they are. Of who they are. Therein that we can understand what they need. Yes! Yes! They are made in the image of God and, after, and according to His likeness. Yes! And so all those things I said about their development in terms of the intellectual and the moral and the physical and the relational and the spiritual, yes, but just like us, they're broken, fallen, depraved, little vipers. Sinners, just like we are. And so with all of that, they are in desperate needs of all kinds of levels of age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate instruction and, yes, discipline. Engaging with them in relationship. One-on-one, -on -one life shared together. Addressing the issues of the mind and the heart. If we love them, if we love them, we'll engage at that level and in that way. Because of who we know they are and they're in what they need. Mindful of their needs. But there's something else here. Mindful of our needs, too. Mindful of our needs as well. As parents and as the adults in this community, mindful of our needs as, as well. Yes, they are fallen image bearers. So are we. So are we, the very ones called to this task. You understand? That said, though, and here's the tension. That doesn't mean do nothing. That doesn't mean you have nothing to say, nothing to do. The fact that you're a fallen image bearer just like they are. Because at the same time, God has in His wisdom, with all intentionality and eternal purposes, divinely designated, appointed, you as that child's parent. 
his agent in their life to guide and direct them to himself. So, that gives you humility and certainty in the task. Both. Both. Certain humility and humble certainty. Both. Knowing who you are and who has given you this charge. So what do we need? Oh my goodness, we need to be going to Jesus. Bringing our children to Jesus, just like these parents did. You see what they're doing? And what Jesus blesses, in a sense, tangentially, the parents for doing? Resisting all the resistance. Opposing all the opposition. I will bring my children to Jesus. I will. I will. I know my need, and I know their need. I will. I will. Okay, how do we do that, though? I mean, it seems so obvious, right? If you're standing there, I'm not sure exactly where this was, let's say likely the Galilee, Capernaum area, so you're in downtown Capernaum. It's kind of an oxymoron, but um, there you are, first century Capernaum, and there's Jesus, and there's the kids, and there's the parents. Oh, I need to bring my children to Jesus. Woo, here we go. Okay, well, but what about now? What does that look like? Take them to his word. Take them to his word. Read with them and to them at bedtime, at the dinner table, and in every other time in between. Take them to his word. Surround them with his body, his people. The church, let them be a part of this. Let them be a part of your community group. Surround them with His people. Take them to Jesus. And take them in prayer. Fulfill your promises. You did promise to pray with and for them. Take them to Jesus. Such is the, the value that we see of these children, such is the, the need that they have, that we have to bring them to Him. And again, we see how this, this challenges our skewed perspectives as though we could handle this in and of ourselves, of self-defoolishness, the arrogance of self-dependency. Okay, but this takes us to the third point. Finally, uh, not just the value of children to Jesus and the need to bring our children to Jesus, but the need we ourselves have to go to Jesus as children. So, we've been speaking against self-determination and self-dependency, but now self-righteousness. And again, we're talking about instincts. Deep instincts of the human heart. If you will, natural inclinations that we have. All of us, towards self-determination, self-dependency, and self-righteousness. And this passage speaks to all of that. To all of that. Uh, you, you think just in terms of, of the infants there that day, being brought by their, their parents, or any newborn, right? What do you have there? You have a living parable of this. Naked, laying on their back, hands and feet flailing, crying that someone would just pick them up. They've got nothing to bring to the table. Nothing but need. Nothing but, but raw dependence. 
That's it. And that's what Jesus is saying our model is. Be like that if you will come to me. It's interesting that, that you look at this passage in Luke 18, this, this little passage here in verse, uh, this, bleh, verses 15 through 17 is actually bracketed, bookended, by two other texts that speak to this same thing. Sort of emphasizing the point, the way Luke has laid it out for us here. So, if you look at this parable here in verses 9 through 14, it speaks to humble dependence. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there's a sermon series in that parable. Not preaching it today. It's clear that at least this much. Jesus intends for us to see a stark contrast. A stark contrast here. And in, in, what his point is that in no way are we to be counting on, relying upon, trusting in our righteousness, our works, our merits, our deeds, what we think, what we insist upon being owed to us. That is flat out humble dependence. But then if you skip over to the other bookend, the other bracket, then you begin to see a slightly different nuance enriching it not just humble dependence, but trusting dependence. So if you look at starting at verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Jesus heard this. He said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Again, a sermon series is lying there waiting to happen. Um, but the teaching is clear. Jesus is pressing hard on the idol of this man's heart, his wealth, his riches, his possessions. And he's making it very clear that if we would come to him, we must not trust in anything in this world, anything of this world, only Him. Only Him. 
So when you put these two brackets together, parable, and then that conversation between Jesus and that young ruler, therein we see we are to how it is that we are and what it looks like for us to come as children with this humble and trusting dependence. Our model is to be the very youngest among us. Our prayer is to be something, that's right, is to be something along the lines of those beautiful old words, 18th century hymn, Augustus Toplady, Rock of Ages, verses 2 and 3. Toplady wrote, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul, I too, the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's our prayer. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you would come to me, this humble, trusting dependence, and you see again how this pushes against our instincts. The self-determination, the self-dependency, and the self-righteousness and how desperately we need Him to correct our perspective that we might then be able to see. And actually, I'm just going to wrap it up by pointing this out. Um, there, there's some striking parallels here to the, the, the correction of our spiritual sight and our physical sight. And some of you have gone through procedures, right? Where you've had that done. LASIK. And PRK. And, and, you know, when you, when you undergo, I have not myself, but um, I certainly have talked to people who have. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a series of steps involved with that. And not a lot of it's terribly fun. I mean, it begins with the uncomfortable realization that your eyesight has deteriorated to the point where you actually need that to be done. That's the fun place where it begins. Then it goes on, and it's actually the, the, the otherwise painful process of actually having the surgery I say otherwise because it's you know local anesthesia and all that, but you know you've got to have that if you're talking about laser beams and blades in your eyeballs. You might want to have some anesthetic. And then even after all of that is done, you've got a long, arduous healing process in which you need to submit yourself to the instruction, I'll say, of the, the specialist telling you this is how you need to, to go about this in the coming days. But the thing is, you know, as unpleasant as all that process may be, you never go back, right? I mean, you, that when the day finally comes when you can open up your eyes and you can see across the, the cafe and read on the menu board at your local coffee shop what you want the barista to give you, or that moment when you wake up and you're, with your own eyes can look across the room in the dark and see the clock, or you're barreling down the interstate and you can actually read those signs without the, the, your co-pilot telling you what it says? That's good! And so you never want to go back. Hard as that was, you never want to go. My friends, here's the thing. We have a spiritual astigmatism.
There's a bentness in there. About the most fundamental things. You see that just in these three verses in Luke 18. Those fundamental things. How we see our children is warped. How we see ourselves is warped. How we need Jesus and to be going to Him again and again and again to help us see a right. Can we pray? Jesus, You are the Creator and the Restorer of all things. Yours is the clarity and the wisdom and the skill. We need more than we know. Yours is the compassion and mercy and grace that is our only hope. We have, oh, we have eyes that do not see as they should. We have hearts that are bent inward upon themselves. We have perspectives, yes, they are skewed. And the withering of our lives bears this out. You put your hands upon the beggar's eyes when he cried out to you, and we too cry. We want to see. We want to see our children. Children here even this morning in our midst. Their value and their need. We want to see ourselves how very weak and unable we are, even towards the most basic, vital callings. Oh, would you instill in us a humble, trusting dependence, that which we, oh, is so appropriate to us and to you, given who we are and who you are. May we come, as you call us to, as children unto you, and may even our children See and know what that means. In your name we pray. Amen.